Uh, Lord, we thank you for who you are, God, what you've done in our life and, and what you've called us to. And I pray, God, that you would bless us as we study your word today, that you would pour out your spirit on us, that we would learn from you. God, that you would bring conviction and encouragement as we uh, talk about uh, what we're called to do, that we're sent out to preach the gospel and make disciples. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would really pierce hearts today, my heart, everyone's hearts, uh, that hears this message Lord, we would understand our calling in this world. Bless the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been sent out on a mission? Now, now I'm not just talking about a, a mission trip. Uh, have you ever been sent to fulfill a task? Uh, maybe your boss sent you to a specific state to get some training, to get better at the job that you perform. Uh, maybe your boss sent you to a specific city to sell a certain product to a specific individual or a company as a whole. Maybe you're a firefighter and you were sent out to put out a, a fire. Maybe you're a police officer and you were sent out to arrest a criminal. Maybe uh, you're in construction and you were sent out to build a house. Maybe you're a painter and you were sent out to paint a house or maybe you were sent to clean a house. The, the point is we're sent out in this life to accomplish various tasks. We're sent out in this life to fulfill specific missions. Now, regardless of the various missions or tasks you've been called to fulfill in the past, we see that the Bible teaches us that there is one mission that should take priority over every other mission in life. We're going to see here in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus is going to send out 70 disciples to fulfill a mission. The title of this teaching is sent out on a mission, sent out on a mission. Sometimes we can forget that this life is really one big mission. It's easy for to forget as Christians that we have a job to do. We have a duty to fulfill. And that job is not the job that we have to provide for our families. The job doesn't end when we simply get home from work. The job doesn't end ultimately until we die. And that job, the job that Jesus Christ has given each and every one of us is to preach the gospel and make disciples. That job is not just for a preacher or a pastor or evangelist or a prophet. That job is for each and every follower of Jesus Christ, as we'll learn here in this text. See, Jesus, he's going to send out these 70 to fulfill a mission, the Great Commission. And the same mission that he sends these 70 out to fulfill 2,000 years ago is the same mission that he has sent each and every one of us out to fulfill. If we don't realize that Jesus has sent us out on a mission in this world to preach the gospel and make disciples, then we completely misunderstand our faith. That we don't truly understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't understand what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's each and every one of our moral obligations to spread the love and truth of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. And I'll tell you personally, this is my greatest conviction for the church. My absolute greatest conviction of the church for the church is that we would be disciples that make disciples. 
Because that's what Jesus teaches us to do. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. He says, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face in every city and place where he himself was about to go. He says, after these things, after what things? After the things that were just said in Luke chapter 9. Let's look at the end of it. It's Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. It says, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, when foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, so Jesus, he gives us these encounters that he had with several people that all said, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want you in my life, Jesus. I want to follow you. And he asks them, are, are you willing to count the cost to follow me? He says, if you put your hand to the plow and you keep looking back, wondering what life could have been like if you never accepted Jesus in your life, he says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. A lot of people say they want to follow Jesus, but they're not willing to do what it takes to actually follow Jesus. See, Jesus, to follow Jesus, as he teaches us here in Luke chapter 9, to follow Jesus is to focus on him so intently that we're willing to forsake everything else. To follow Jesus, as he says here, look in verse 60. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Don't, don't worry about these other things. Your primary focus as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to preach the kingdom of God. It is to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ. See, when we're focused on Jesus Christ and the calling that he's placed on each of our lives, then we realize everything else is somewhat insignificant. We see this example in John chapter 4, Jesus has this encounter with this Samaritan woman. Now, this woman, she was an outcast. She struggled with sexual immorality. And Jesus meets her at the well. This woman, she came to the well. Why? Because she wanted water. She had a water pot. She went to fill the water pot. And she has this encounter with Jesus. And it says in John chapter 4, verse 27, that she left the water pot. And you know what she did after she left the water pot? She went into her Samaritan village and she told people about Jesus. Why? She recognized after she had that encounter with Jesus, when she realized that her purpose in life was found in the person of Jesus and the calling that he had placed on her life, she realized that the thing that I was presently focused on no longer seems to matter. I went to fill the water pot, but when I encountered Jesus, I realized that the primary focus of my life is to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to make him known to other people who don't know him. See, when we realize who we are in Christ and what he's called us to, then the things we were previously focused on no longer seem to matter. Our priorities shift, 
And we realize that nothing is more important than pursuing Jesus and answering the call that he's placed on our lives. That's why he says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You say you want to follow me, but show me that you want to follow me. So he has this encounter with all these people that say they want to follow him. And then in verse 10, sorry, in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it says, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Who did he appoint? The ones who didn't just say they wanted to follow Jesus. He, he appointed the ones that were actually willing to follow Jesus. See, Jesus, he chose these 70 for a specific purpose. And guess what? If you're here today, Jesus chose you for a specific purpose. This is point number one. God has chosen you to fulfill a mission. God has chosen you to fulfill a mission. Let's be real. God could have chosen anyone else, but God chose you. He, he, he chose you for specific purposes. He, he, he chose you because he desires to use you in a profound way. It says here in Ephesians chapter one, if you want to flip there, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Bible says that God chose us before the foundations of the world, meaning God chose us knowing the shortcomings that we would have in our lives. God chose us knowing the flaws that we would have in our lives. God chose us knowing that we would fall short. God chose us despite the fact that he knew we would inevitably mess up that we would inevitably fall into sin. But guess what? This text implies that his knowledge of our failures didn't deter him from choosing you. He chose you despite your failures. And we can think of all these things. Uh, I messed up. I made a mistake. I struggle with this thing and that thing and the other thing. God can't use me. Bible says he chose you before the foundations of the earth and he knows your failures. He, he knows your future failures. He knows your past failures. He knows your present failures and he wants to use you despite your failures. What does he want to use you to accomplish? Ephesians tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's chosen us. He's created us for good works. It says here we are his workmanship. That word workmanship in the Greek is poema. It's literally where we get the word poem from. In other words, Paul's saying that God has made us a beautiful work of art. He's made us, he's created us, he's fashioned us, he's molded us into this profound poem that's supposed to impact other people, that people should hear about and be moved by. He says, you're his workmanship, you're perfectly crafted for his purposes. We might think, God can't use me. What kind of work of art am I? 
What do I bring to the table? I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't have the gift to make disciples. I'm not a pastor or a preacher or a prophet or any of these things. God knows who you are. God knows what you are. God knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He knows the gifts that you don't have. He knows the gifts that you do have. This text applies to all of us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them despite what we bring to the table or what we don't bring to the table despite our abundance of gifts or our lack of gifts despite our shortcomings and failures God says we're a work of art and the artist is working on us as a work of art to be used for his purposes these works, it says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's for, created us for good works, but we have the choice as to whether or not we walk in them. There's opportunities every single day. There's works that God has prepared before the foundations of the earth for us to walk in today. There are so many opportunities and yet we miss so many of these works. We miss so many of these opportunities. Why? Because we forget why we're here. We forget why we're on the earth. The fact that we're here on this earth for a temporary time period called to be missionaries. Truly, we're missionaries on this earth. That doesn't mean you have to go to Africa or Colombia or whatever the case may be. We're called to be heavenly citizens and have a heavenly mindset. And with this heavenly mindset, we recognize, man, life is short. Not just my life, but the life of others. And there's these good works God prepared for me. And I need to do my best to take advantage of them, to, to walk in them, as Paul says here. See, these preordained works, they don't just happen at church. In fact, most of them happen outside of the church. There are opportunities at, at your job, at the gym you may or may not go to, at the grocery store, uh, at your home. Uh, there are opportunities everywhere. Truly, the opportunities are endless. Sometimes we need a change of perspective to realize these opportunities that God has for us every single day. Uh, John, one of the guys that was on the mission trip with us, um, I wanted to put a huge emphasis on evangelism uh, because we were blessed to have a lot of translators there in Colombia, and, and I just, uh, I really wanted us to focus on that. So we did quite a bit. We did a lot of evangelism, and uh, one of the first days we went out, the whole group was, most of them were pretty nervous, and so I was trying to encourage them and give them some tips, and it's like, hey, you, they're, they're probably not going to martyr you for sharing the gospel with them. We'll probably be all right. Um, uh, so John, uh, he said this afterwards, he goes, man, that kind of changed my perspective. I, I realized, uh, that on this earth, we're simply souls passing each other. It's more than just the fact that we're in human bodies. We're souls passing each other and each soul. Guess what? Each soul has an eternal destination. Uh, so I can't go wrong by sharing the gospel with this soul because I don't know where this soul is going. This soul could be going to hell or the soul could be going to heaven. And I'm never going to know if I don't have a conversation with them. I can't mess up by sharing the gospel with the soul. You can't mess up because sometimes people put so much of an emphasis of, oh, I was led to this person, but I wasn't led to share the gospel with this person. I think that's an excuse. We see Paul in Ephesus. He shared the gospel with everybody that was there. Every single person. Why? Because he knew these are souls. And these souls were created for eternity. 
And these souls are either going to one place or the other. And if I open my mouth and I share the love of Jesus Christ, guess what? Their eternal destination might change. These are the works that God has prepared for us before the foundations of the earth that we would recognize the value in each individual that they've been created in God's image. They were created to live forever and they will live either in heaven forever or hell forever. That's what the Bible teaches us. In order to walk in these good works, we got to be willing. We got to say like, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8, he says, here am I, Lord, send me. He says, here am I, God, I'm here, I'm willing, send me. That has to be all of our mentalities because guess what? You're not going to walk in the good works unless you're willing. The only difference between the people in Luke chapter 9 at the end of the people in Luke chapter 10 is that they were willing. They, they didn't keep making excuses about why they couldn't follow Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I'll really do what you're asking me to do tomorrow or next week, or next month, or next year. But right now, it's kind of inconvenient. That's what they're saying. They're making excuses. The 70 that were sent out, what sets them apart, is that they were willing. We gotta be willing to walk in these good works. We gotta be willing to get out of our comfort zone, to open our mouth and share the love of Jesus Christ. We gotta be willing to make disciples. The good works won't just happen magically. The good works have to be walked in. And it takes willingness to walk in them. So Jesus, he appoints these 70. Now, 70, in the Bible, it represents the whole world. You've heard me say this before, many of you. Uh, but in Exodus chapter 19 uh, and Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, uh, yes, the Bible says that he wrote them with his finger on the tablets, but it, it also says that God spoke them. And rabbis taught then and still teach today that when God spoke the Ten Commandments, he spoke them in all 70 languages of the world. Doesn't mean that there were just 70 languages. The point is, number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And what we see here is that God wasn't just putting the Israelites under the Ten Commandments. He was putting the entire world under the Ten Commandments. So the significance of Jesus sending 70 out is that it represents the gospel going out to the entire world. And that is part of our mission to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. So he appoints these 70 and he sends them out, it says here, two by two. Jesus instilled the idea of accountability. Uh, he was protecting them from pride and temptation. Pride so that they would realize, hey, it took a team uh, to make this thing happen so that the person couldn't just uh, boast in what they did, uh, but they recognized it took the body of Christ to make this happen. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, share the gospel with someone unless you're with another person, okay? Uh, it, it, it just means this is how Jesus did this initially. Uh, yes, to protect them from pride, but as I mentioned, also to protect them from temptation so that they would have uh, accountability on this mission. The text continues in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. It says, Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus says the, the harvest is plentiful. And guess what? The, the harvest is greater than it's ever been. Okay? The harvest is greater than it's ever been. Why do I say that? Because there's more people than there has ever been. Okay? There's over 7 billion people in this world. And over 2 billion of those people 
claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, more than half of those 2 billion, so over 1 billion, are Catholic. So 2 billion people out of 7 billion claim to be a Christian. Whether those 2 billion are actually uh, Christians and have a saving faith, I don't know. Only God knows. But even if they are, guess what that means? 5 billion people need to hear the gospel. 5 billion people at least don't know Jesus Christ. The harvest is greater than it has ever been. But there's a problem. He says here, the laborers are few. He says, there are very few people who choose to fully embrace the calling of a disciple. And it's sad that there are few, but Jesus says that there are few. But there's a reality that Jesus, he's called each and every one of us to be disciples. A disciple simply means a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Jesus has called each and every one of us to be disciples that make disciples. That's the calling that each and every one of us have on our lives. In whatever capacity that looks like, that's the calling. We see that through the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, uh, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, Go therefore and make converts. He didn't say, go therefore and make believers. He said, go therefore and make disciples. That's the calling that each and every one of us has. The Great Commission is to make disciples. Then he says here in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, the disciples probably don't realize this, but Jesus is getting ready to send them out. So he says, hey, I want you to consider all these lost people. And I want you to pray to God that God would send people out to minister to these lost people. So the disciples are probably, all right, Lord, we pray that you would send people out to these lost people. And Jesus goes, how about you go? I'm going to send you out. But that's what the Lord does. It's not a trick. It's just really wise. Hey, pray for the lost. And guess what? As we pray for the lost, God often puts it on our heart to preach to the lost. Yeah, God does powerful things through prayer, but there's also a reality. One of the powerful things he does through prayer is to change our hearts and align our hearts with his hearts. So I'm not just praying for the lost. I'm seeking to bring the lost to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 10, verse 3, he says, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Super encouraging, right? What happens when a lamb and a wolf come in contact with each other? Usually not good things. I've never heard of a lamb beating up a wolf, right? You hear a wolf's destroying lambs, eating lambs. But he says, he doesn't say you're the wolf and they're the lambs. He says, you're the lamb and they're the wolves. What is he telling us? Jesus wants us to know that he's sending us out into vulnerable, uh, vulnerable situations. Situations where we're going to be under attack where we're going to face opposition and persecution. This is point number two. Expect opposition on the mission. Expect opposition on the mission. Jesus wants us to have the, the heart of the lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what did that cost him? It cost him opposition. It cost him persecution. It ultimately cost him death on the cross. In Isaiah 53 verse 7, Speaking of Jesus, 
It says Jesus was led as a lamb to the slaughter. It says he would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. Speaking of Christ, here's the reality. If we imitate Christ, then we're going to suffer like Christ. That doesn't mean we're all going to be crucified. But it does mean that the Bible promises us that if we purpose to really follow Jesus, if we purpose to put our hand to the plow and not look back, if we purpose to be disciples that make disciples, we're going to face opposition in this life. We're going to face persecution. In 2 Timothy 3.12, 3, Paul says, uh, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, so if, we're really trying to desi- if we're really trying to live for Jesus, the Bible promises you're going to face opposition. You're going to face persecution. Jesus promised it himself. In John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation. If you're really trying to do this disciple thing, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. I shared this with most of you, but I was facing some spiritual warfare before the trip. Uh, Right after I get through the training and I tell people, I warn all all the group, not thinking about myself, thinking about them, just trying to set them up for success. Hey guys, uh, you're probably going to face some spiritual warfare leading up to the trip. The enemy wants to distract you. He wants you to to, to deter you. Uh, He wants you to question whether or not you should even go. Sure enough, the next day I started feeling terrible. I was just feeling horrible. I I wasn't like sick like a cold. I was just achy. I was unmotivated like all these. I'm like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have talked to me. If I didn't talk about it, it wouldn't happen. I don't know. But just going through some stuff. And then the day that we left, I felt fine, perfectly fine. The the day that I felt great. But the opposition didn't end before the trip. It continued on the trip. See, uh, in Cartagena, uh, in Colombia, uh, prostitution is legal. Uh, and it's actually one of the greatest um, sex trafficking places in the entire world. Uh, literally, um, parents uh, sell their children for the, for the weekend as sex slaves just to make ends meet. And it's not even like they see it as a problem. It's just uh, this is culture. Okay, we're poor and we need money, so we'll give you our 10-year-old boy or our uh, 13-year-old girl for the weekend and you bring him back and uh, just give us the money for food for the week. This is really what's going on there in Cartagena and Tirabamba. Uh, but prostitution is, is, is legal and there's a um, huge emphasis on sexual immorality without any conviction that it's actually wrong. So we're sharing the gospel with this guy, me, John, and Tim. Uh, I walk up to this guy. He's uh, sitting on like this... Uh, thing and he's watching cars that was his job and tim told me like these guys that have these jobs they're like some of the poorest people in the area and nobody ever pays attention to them they're just like trying to get enough money to eat uh so i see this guy and i walk up to him and i start talking to him tim's translating for me and i start asking him um uh, it, it was funny like when i first came up to him he was like he was really smiley and i asked him like why are you so happy he's like i don't know yada yada so i started to see, uh, share the uh, love of jesus with him and explaining a relationship with jesus christ and what that looks like and his demeanor completely changed he stopped smiling and he got serious and he started tearing up you, you could tell the holy spirit was doing something in his heart he started getting emotional he recognized in that moment that he needed a savior and literally right after i asked him hey uh do you want a relationship with jesus christ he said yes as soon as he said yes these pre- three prostitutes come up and they come up to us and they start hitting on us. They're speaking in Spanish. I don't know what they said. Uh, but Tim speaks Spanish and, uh, and, uh, he told him, Hey, we're sharing the word with this guy. He spoke in Spanish. Uh, do you, do you want to hear the Bible? Uh, do you want to hear the words that we're sharing with the guy? Like, Oh no, 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 no. So this guy shortly after that, 
And he ended up accepting the Lord. And it was one of those moments, like you never know someone's eternal destination, right? You never know if someone has sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Only God knows. But there's one of those powerful things when you share the gospel and you see it hits them emotionally. Like God's doing something in their heart in that moment. It becomes real for perhaps the first time in their life. And he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. But that conversation didn't come without opposition. See, when we purpose to answer this call to preach the gospel and make disciples, we will inevitably face persecution. We will face opposition. If we never face any form of persecution or opposition, then we're probably not imitating Christ. If our Christian walk never gets resistance from the world, then it's likely not a Christian walk that the Bible supports. I'm just being real with you. This is what the Bible teaches. It says if we're living for Jesus, then we're going to have opposition in our life. That doesn't mean we'll all be martyrs. But there will be forms of opposition and forms of persecution. This is why Jesus says, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Then he says in Luke chapter 10, verse 4, Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. That's point number three. God will provide for the mission. God will provide for the mission. He challenges them. Hey, take a step of faith and don't carry anything with you. Travel lightly and watch the Lord provide. He says, don't worry about material things. Don't worry about what you have. Why? Because when we worry about what we don't have, we often forget what we do have. And the Lord encourages us not to worry about the things that we don't have. Because it can distract us from ministry opportunities. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling with fear. I'm struggling with worry. I'm struggling with making ends meet. I, I'm overwhelmed by all these different things that are going on. And Jesus says, quit thinking about those things. You know what you need to focus on? He says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's in the context of worry. He says, quit worrying. Quit, quit letting fear distract you and deter you from answering the call that God's placed on your life. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek Jesus and seek to fulfill the calling he's placed on your life. And you don't have to worry about provision. God's going to provide. So he says, take nothing with you. He says, carry neither money bag. Why? It's not about filling your money bag. It's not about making financial gain. God says, I'm going to provide for you financially. He says, don't take a knapsack. Traveling light will help you focus on the mission at hand. God's going to provide materially. And he says, don't, don't take sandals either. Why? Because he wants us to trust him along the journey. See, it's a walk of faith. It's an adventure of faith. We got to trust him where he's guiding our feet. The Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. So he says, don't take sandals. I'll provide for you physically. God did an amazing thing with providing so much uh, for us during this trip. Um, in fact, <laughs> literally, we couldn't take everything, okay? So whoever bought that brand new baseball bat, I couldn't fit it in a bag. We didn't take it. Uh, and we have leftover stuff that's sitting in the office. So if there's anything that you're like, I wonder if they took that and uh, I might want it back, feel free to take it back. But the point is, when you answer the calling that God's placed on your life and you purpose to be a disciple that makes a disciple, he's going to give you more than you know what to do with. It's just the reality. 
When we purpose to, to do what God has called us to do, when we're focused on him and we're focused on others and we're focused on the mission, he, he's going to open up the storehouses of heaven. He's going to pour out so much blessing on our life that we're going to go, oh my gosh, like there's so much. I just need to give some of it back. And we have all this extra stuff. Why? Because God called us on a mission. He provided for the mission. This is what he does. This is what he's telling the disciples. I'm going to take care of you. Now, that provision always isn't always materially. It is always spiritually. He provides the spirit, the power of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. But we see even here, there was a reality that he provided for them physically and financially and materially. And he says here in verse 4, he says, greet no one along the road. Okay, Jesus isn't saying don't be nice to people, don't love on people, don't be uh, cordial to people. No, he's saying you need to focus on the mission. The priority of the mission is not to make friends, it's to make disciples. And as you purpose to make disciples, you're going to make friends. But, but I want you to focus on the mission that I've given you. See, a greeting in that culture uh, wasn't just saying, hi, hello, uh, shalom. You know, it, it wasn't, it, it was more significant than that. A greeting traditionally was, hey, you invite somebody in your home, you have a meal, sometimes they stay for a night or a two or a week or whatever the case may be. It, it was very time consuming. Uh, so what Jesus is getting at here, again, is to be intentional, to stay focused, don't get distracted by relationships that don't support the mission. And that's the call for each and every one of us. Sometimes we can have relationships in our life that distract us from the mission. And Jesus says, don't get distracted by those relationships. Don't engage in those relationships that are distracting you from what I've called you to do, to preach the gospel and make disciples. He says, you've got to be willing to forsake all, even those relationships. If you really want to follow me, if you want to be worthy enough to be my disciple. So he says, greet no one. And he says here in verse 5, but whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. And if not, it will return to you. We see Jesus tells them to come with a peace offering, to come with a message of peace. Now, this isn't just New Testament stuff. This is Old Testament stuff as well. If you want to write this down, it's Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, verses 10 to 12. When God uh, called the Israelites out of Egypt, delivered them from the bondage of slavery, uh, as they were going to enter the promised land, God in Deuteronomy chapter 20 gave them uh, basically directions for how they were supposed to engage in warfare. And, and what he told them, uh, he said, hey, uh, before you rid the Canaanites of the land of Cana, uh, Canaan, the, uh, the promised land, I want you to offer them peace. Uh, see if they'll accept a peace offering. And if they don't accept the peace offering, then we're going to have to slaughter them. We're going to have to wipe them out. Jesus says, offer them peace. And later on, we'll get into judgment. Why? You can't have peace without the Prince of Peace. There is no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. To reject the Prince is to reject peace in your life. Okay? So if I reject the Prince of peace. I'm rejecting peace and I'm inviting judgment. That's why he says, offer them peace. And I'll say, if they don't receive it, they're inviting judgment as we'll see here. Look at verse seven and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. 
says, stay at the same house, just eating and drinking what they give. Don't be asking for a bunch of extra stuff. Be content with whatever they give you. And he says, stay at the same house. What is he getting at here? What he's saying is be, be thorough in the conversation. Be thorough in how you invest into these people whose houses you are going into. This is point number four. Be thorough on the mission. Be thorough on the mission. Why? Because we're, when we're thorough in our investment of other people, people recognize a genuineness, a sincerity. One of the greatest gifts you can ever give an individual is time, is your time. It's a sacrifice. Jesus is saying, hey, stay at that, that same house as long as they'll receive you, as long as they'll listen. Because just by you giving them that time, they start seeing the love of Jesus Christ. You're taking that time, but you're also being thorough in the conversation. During the trip, um, there was uh, the, the, basically the first day we really went out evangelizing. Um, there were towards the end, almost at the very end of, of the time that we had uh, quite a few people accepted the Lord, even that first day. Um, and there was this guy, he was, uh, sitting on, uh, this, uh, little bench and he was so sad. He was so sorrowful. Uh, and Susie went with one of our translators, Andrea, uh, to, to share with them and encourage them. Uh, so Andrea's, uh, translating for Susie, uh, and then Susie pulls Jaden over to, be a part of the conversation. Um, and and Jaden's sharing with him how God has impacted his life and all these different things. And this guy's demeanor starts changing. And they were able to pray for this guy. His name was William. Uh, I just got a message uh, from uh, Andrea that this guy's coming to church now. It, this guy, when they talked to him, all hope was lost. He wanted to die. He, he didn't want to live anymore. All hope was lost, and he's just sitting there sad and sorrowful. But because Jaden and Susie and Andrea took that time, they were thorough in the conversation, they invested into this guy, they prayed for this guy, that guy was able to see the love of Jesus Christ in them, and now that guy's getting plugged into the church. Like you never know how by taking that time with individuals, by giving them that sacrifice of time, by investing into them thoroughly, how that may impact them forever. There was another guy. Uh, so this is sad, but um, when they see Americans, people come from all over the world to go there to use drugs and to get women. Okay, that's one of the main attractions of Cartagena. So when they see Americans, right off the bat, you have these taxi drivers, whatever you want, I got you. And what they're saying is literally whatever you want, uh, boy, girl, whatever age, whatever drug, whatever you want, we will get it for you. So this is how they approach Americans. So we ran into quite a few Americans, actually, that were there for these purposes, to, to have a party and to get these women um, and... Uh, we probably ruined a lot of people's vacations, okay, while we're there. I'll just say it like that. Uh, but uh, there was this one day where we had a, a little time, um, like a little break time, and I took a bunch of the people to, to the beach, and we were throwing the football around. Uh, and this, uh, um, yeah, he's in his 50s, this uh, uh, bigger Afri- African-American gentleman, that's significant for the story, um, he came over, and he wanted to play catch with us. So we're throwing, and then he starts trying to cover me, which that ain't happening, okay? 
So <laughs> as he's trying to cover me, he ends up falling down. He like pulled his hamstring. Um, and so I, I go and I help him up. I'm like, I help him up and uh, talk to him for a second. And then he goes by back with his friends and they have like this cabana. They're all drinking. They're all partying. It's the mid afternoon and they have all these girls uh, over there with them. And I don't know. Uh, these are Colombian girls. Anyways, uh, at the end, when we we're getting ready to leave, Terry was the guy's name. He came up and he started, uh, uh, talking to us. And first thing he said, you know, all the racism that's going on in the United States right now. Uh, he said, man, I, he was from New York. He said, uh, man, I don't see black or white. He says, if you, uh, if you have a, a, a little white baby and a little black baby, they don't see each other and recognize the difference. His point was that racism is produced in the culture. It's not something that's innate in us. And I'm like, yeah, I agree with you, but I took the opportunity to start telling them why we were there in Colombia. Uh, we aren't on vacation. We're, uh, here on a mission. Um, Anyways, had a decent conversation with them, and then I walked away, uh, and Jessica, one of the girls that was with us, she said, hey, did, did anyone pray for him? And I go, oh, no, we probably should have. Um, ask him. Ask him if he wants prayer. So uh, she asked Terry if he wants prayer, and he's like, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, pray for me. Uh, so I pray for him, uh, and then right after I pray for him, one of his friends comes from the cabana partying with the girls, uh, and he comes up, his name was Chad, and, and he's kind of emotional at this point. He's like, hey, man, will you pray for me too? Uh, I lost my mom and my dad in the last year, and his dad was a pastor, uh, and because his dad died serving the Lord, he kind of like walked away from the faith. He happened to, his dad was a pastor in Hollywood, Florida, which is right next to Fort Lauderdale. So he knew Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, the church that I came from. So we start having this conversation. Uh, he wants prayer. We go to pray for him and one of his other friends. And one after another, all these people that are partying, they start coming over. We want prayer. We want prayer. We want prayer. Literally, there's about 15 of them and I don't know, six of us. And we have this 20 plus person prayer circle on this beach where everyone is wiling out and partying. And we were able to pray for these uh, these men and women, and they were just touched. It probably ruined their vacation, but that's cool. I'm good with that. But the point is that we were thorough, and we took the time. Had Jessica not said, hey, did we pray for them? That would have never happened. But because she put it out there and said, hey, uh, we didn't pray for them. Let's pray for them. Uh, we did, and it wasn't just one guy. It ended up impacting like 15 people. It was just an awesome, uh, awesome encounter. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, stay at the same house, be thorough. Luke chapter 10. Verse 8, he says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you. Okay, so whatever they provide for you, they're likely trying to provide your, their best, so, so eat it, okay? Um, this usually isn't a problem, but sometimes it can be. Um, I've told many of you, when I was in Liberia, uh, we traveled like this three-hour drive and then a four-hour hike through the, jung uh, the jungle, and we get to this place, uh, and they're so excited to feed us because they had meat, um, and, uh, when we got, went to eat the bowl of soup that had the meat with it, they told us, uh, we realized it was rat soup. Okay. So it was a giant rat that they had caught that they were thankful that they were able to provide us meat. Um, this is the best they had. So, uh, there's, I even have pictures on Facebook. Like I'm like chewing it. There's like some of the, like, um, the ribs and like some of the hair on it. And you're like, chewing. it's really chewy. It wasn't the flavor. The flavor wasn't too bad. It was the, the knowledge of what I'm eating. Right? It's like, am I going to die from this? I don't know. Eat whatever's set before you. 
were blessed. <laughs> we were blessed in Colombia that that wasn't an issue. All the food was absolutely good. Jesus, Jesus says, eat whatever is set before you. Sometimes that is a sacrifice in and of itself. Luke chapter 10, verse 9, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Let's break this down just a little bit. He says, heal the sick there. Uh, so they were performing physical healings, and God does perform physical healing still today. I've shared this with you in the past, uh, several experiences that I've had with people that have been actually physically uh, healed, whether literally they were blind and now they can see rashes, broken bones, uh, many things that God still does today. But the physical healings aren't... Um, aren't nearly as significant as the spiritual healings. And the point always of the physical healing is to point people to their need of spiritual healing. And this is what Jesus gets at. In Luke chapter 4, um, he, he, when he declares his mission statement in the synagogue, he quotes Isaiah 61, uh, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. Uh, and he basically tells us, hey, this is what I've been called to do. And then he goes on to tell the people, there's going to come a time where you tell me, great physician, heal yourself. And then he begins to explain what physical healings are all about. And he says, hey, when you look at the Old Testament, there are so many situations where God could have healed many people and he only healed one. Why would he only heal one? He heals one so that people realize their need, not just for physical healing, but the recognition that they need more than anything, spiritual healing. The physical healings are always meant to point to the great physician. That's why he performs them. So we see these disciples were actually used to perform physical healings. But look what it says in verse 9. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the priority is not healing the sick physically. It's healing them spiritually. How? Through the gospel. He's telling them to preach the gospel. And then he says. In verse 10. Whatever city you enter. And they do not receive you. Go out into its streets. And say the very dust of your city. Which clings to us. We wipe off against you. So Jesus told them. Hey there are going to be those who reject you. Who don't receive you. Why? Because many people don't want to know the truth. They would rather live the lie. Many people, they don't like to hear that they're a sinner in need of a savior. They want to think that they're good. Uh, they don't want to have some deity lord over them. They want to be their own lords. They don't want to feel vulnerable and weak and recognize that they're in need of a savior. They want to think that they can save themselves. And there are various other reasons why people reject the gospel, but Jesus promised that there are going to be times where we share our faith and people will not receive you. He says, don't be surprised. The world hated me, it's going to hate you as well. And he tells them, if they don't receive you, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. This was a common expression that implicated judgment. 
the judgment of God. So he's saying, hey, you don't receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't receive the prince of peace. You reject relationship with God. You get judgment. They wipe the dust off their feet, pointing to the fact that they're going to be judged. And Jesus elaborates on this in verse 12 to 16. He says, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Therese, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So he says, these cities that you're going to, these cities that I've been doing ministry in, the cities that I've been performing miracles in, if they don't receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are going to receive judgment. Now, Jesus compares the cities that he did ministry in to these cities that had been judged by God long ago. He mentions Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. They had already been, these cities had already been judged. Jesus is comparing, he says, the judgment that they received, okay, it's going to be worse for those who reject the gospel, which helps us understand something. The wages of sin is death, but there are certainly greater judgments that people experience for different sins. Jesus makes that clear. There's going to be a worse judgment for those who receive the gospel and reject it. Okay, So he mentions these cities, Tyre, Sodom, and Sidon. They were notoriously wicked, idolatrous cities. Many of them struggled with sexual immorality. We see Sodom back in Genesis. They were judged primarily because of sexual immorality and idolatry and sins of various natures. We see Tyre later on was judged. And I want to look at Tyre for just a second because there's a cool prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 26. That helps us understand how Tyre would be judged. Now this prophecy is written two, three hundred years before the judgment actually took place. And he says in Ezekiel chapter 26 verse 3. Therefore thus says the Lord God, behold I am against you, I am against you O Tyre. And will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. He's talking about judgment against Tyre. Look what it says here in verse 12. They will plunder your riches. And pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Okay? This is significant. Tyre, we see, ended up being judged by God through Alexander the Great. Okay? He took over Tyre. He destroyed Tyre. Now, how Tyre was set up, I should have probably done a map. Uh, So you had the mainland of Tyre, and then you had this island. Okay, so when Alexander the Great invaded the mainland, he destroyed the mainland, the people escaped to the island. Okay, they thought they were safe on the island. But Alexander the Great, he started taking the rubble and the soil and their possessions, and he started building a bridge to the island. Like, imagine this. You think you're safe on the island? Here comes Alexander over time. He's just building this bridge to get to you. It's just like, it's only a matter of time before he gets here. This is what Ezekiel 26 is pointing to. As he says, we'll put the soil and the rubble and all these different things in the water. We see that bridge, that land bridge that Alexander made to destroy Tyre still stands today. So this city, just as God prophesied, ended up being judged. Sidon was also judged by God through Alexander the Great. 
And he uses these cities as an example of what's to come for Therese and Bethsaida in Capernaum. They reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, he performed many miracles in uh, most of these cities. We won't get into the various miracles uh, for time's sake. Uh, What he's getting at is that these cities had more reason to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah more than perhaps any other city. So the more evidence someone has to believe that Jesus is the Christ... If they reject that knowledge, they're inviting a greater judgment on themselves. He's pointed to the fact that everybody, they've been given enough evidence. But here's the reality. It's not just these cities. Everybody's been given enough evidence. Romans 1 says creation is enough evidence. It says that we're all without excuse, every single person. Uh, there was this conversation I had with an atheist uh, a few years ago, Elvis the Atheist. I'll never forget Elvis the Atheist. I pray for him as I think of him. Uh, but I had this conversation with him and uh, talked to him for like two hours. Um, uh, and we get towards the end of the conversation. And I asked him, so what would God have to do for you so that you would know that he is who he says he was, that he's real? And this is exactly what he said to me. He said, God would have to come down to earth, claim to be God and perform a bunch of miracles to prove he was God. I go, dude, that's what Jesus did 2000 years ago. You want him to do that every single day? Um, The point is, uh, God's given us enough evidence. He's given us enough evidence through creation. He's given us enough evidence through the gospel. I couldn't believe he shared the gospel with me. Like he told me the gospel. It's like, dude, you know the gospel and and you still reject it. The point is, it's not about a lack of evidence. When people reject Jesus Christ, it's not because that they don't have enough evidence. It's because their hearts are hardened for whatever reason, and they don't want Jesus to be their savior. There's more than enough evidence. So these cities that rejected Jesus Christ would receive a stricter judgment. Now, certain people have more evidence to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, than others. That's a reality. But we see that we have a moral responsibility to give as many people as much evidence as we can so that they would recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It says this in Colossians 1.27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your relationship with Jesus could give other people hope, and it should. Your life should be enough evidence for people to believe that the gospel is true. We all have a responsibility to, to put that evidence out there, whether that's through the way we live or the way that we speak, things that we do. These cities rejected Jesus, not because of a lack of evidence. The text continues. We'll just get to verse 20, verse 17. I know it's a long service today. Had a lot to get through. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they come back and they got God's stories. They're like, wow. They were probably nervous in the beginning. Maybe some of them was their first time being sent out. They come back with joy. Why? Because God used them profoundly. And I just scratched the surface of God's stories that happened in Colombia. And there are so many other God stories. Once again, I encourage you to ask every individual that went on the trip. You'll probably hear another story. It brings joy to be used by the Lord in a profound way. But Jesus responds to him here in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and all 
and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The disciples are excited about what they accomplished in the Lord's name. And they have a right to be excited. But the Lord charges them and encourages them uh, to, to, to not lose focus. Their primary focus has to be their relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, uh, don't just rejoice because I've used you profoundly. Rejoice that you have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's point number five. God's mission is that we know him first, that's priority, and make him known. God's mission is that we know him and make him known. In Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, paraphrased, um, God says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the strong man glory in his strength, but, but let he who glories glory in this, that he knows me and understands me. He says, don't fall into the trap of finding your identity and being used by God. It's important to be used by God. But what's more important is your relationship with God. And my desire to make God known has to come from my knowledge of God, my intimate knowledge of God, my experiential knowledge of God, my relationship with God. We can't get that backwards. It's easy to put more emphasis on being used by God than our relationship with God. But if we're putting more emphasis on this, then we got it backwards. If our emphasis is on our relationship with God, then he can use us in more profound ways. See, when our heart is in the right, right place with God and our relationship with God, then we realize that making him known to others it's not about numbers. It's simply about doing the will of God. It's not how God used me all these different times in my life. It's simply the fact that through my intimate pursuit of God, I recognize that he has a plan for me. He has a will that he wants me to walk in. And as I seek the Lord with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, I had a desire to walk in that will. And as I walk in that will, if I see one person come to faith or a thousand people come to faith, the important thing is that I'm pursuing the Lord and I'm doing what he's asked me to do. The point is, it doesn't matter how many people God uses you to bring in the Lord. It matters that your relationship with God translates to you walking in his will. It doesn't matter if every person you ever share the gospel with rejects you. As long as you're doing what God's asking you to do, it's not a numbers game. It's about the fact that our relationship with God should translate to us wanting to fulfill his will in our lives. David Livingston was a missionary in Africa for 30 years. Guess how many people he saw come to the Lord? One person for 30 years. But that opened up the door for many missionaries to go to Africa. See... Jesus tells us to, to rejoice and in other words, our, our relationship with him. Because when our relationship with him is in the right spot, I recognize that whether God uses me profoundly to bring a bunch of people to Christ or it uh, doesn't really seem like he's using me that mightily, the important thing is that my relationship with the Lord is translating to a life of obedience. See, just as Jesus sent the disciples out to fulfill a mission, so too is he sending each and every one of us out to fulfill a mission. And guess what? Every single day that you wake up, Jesus is sending you out 
He said, you know, every day that you have breath in your lungs, you're on a mission. This world is a mission field. And our moral obligation, our duty as sons and daughters of the living God is to spread his love to anyone and everyone we come in contact with. Do you realize that when you accepted Jesus Christ into your life, you also accepted this mission, the great commission to preach the gospel and make disciples. If that's true, are you fulfilling this mission or have you neglected the mission? Uh, I encourage each and every one of us, myself included, to really consider what we signed up for when we accepted Jesus Christ into our life. Are we doing our part to fulfill this mission? Or have we made some excuse like the guys in Luke chapter 9? I'll follow you, Lord, but I'm going to focus on this for now. Or I got this other thing to worry about. See, Jesus, he used those who are willing. And he wants to use all who are willing. But he won't force us to be willing. That willingness has to be produced in our own lives. And we have to make that choice. If we want to respond to this call to preach the gospel and make disciples or not. Are you answering the call? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your grace in our life, God, that you would use wretches like us. Lord, we know... We know it's not about what we bring to the table. Lord, we know it's not about uh, our gifts or accomplishments. God, you just ask us to be willing. You just ask us to, to respond like Isaiah, Isaiah did. Here am I, send me, God, I'm here. Uh, I'm willing to be used by you. And when we're willing to be used by you, God, as we see in this text, you use us in, in, in mighty ways. And Lord, I pray that that would be each and every one of our convictions, God, that we would purpose to be disciples that make disciples. We wouldn't make the excuse that something else should uh, be more important or there are other priorities in life. As you said, let the dead bury the dead, but you follow me, God. I pray that we would be people that follow you, that that we don't just talk about following you or or we don't even tell you in the morning, uh, God, I want to follow you if we're not actually trying to follow you. Lord, help us to follow you. Help us teach us what that means. God, and as I pray, as, I, as, as we purpose to follow you, Lord, I pray that you would produce that joy and satisfaction in our hearts that we would recognize that there's no greater gift than to be used by you, to have a saving knowledge of you, and to spread that saving knowledge to others. In Jesus' name, amen.